Welcome back to Kings of the North. Doug Maurice and Bill Landis talking all about Northern football, contextualizing, celebrating, discussing, analyzing the best teams in Northern football. 28 teams we claim as our own, and we talk about them every Monday here on Kings of the North. We're so glad that you guys are with us. We always start with the Frantic 14. That's seven topics, two minutes each. This week, we're going to rank the best Northern teams, but then we're going to talk about their flaws where are these good teams vulnerable? We're going to rank not the best players this week, but the best receivers, which is, you know, there are a lot of the best players, Landis, but we wanted to really focus on that. Marvin Harrison Jr. had a big week for Ohio State last week. There's some other really good receivers in the North this year. We'll go behind enemy lines and talk about how the South is puffed up. <laughs> not that great. Brian Ferentz, Survivor Show, as always, and then a major look ahead at the end because guess what? The biggest game of the college football season to date, no offense to Florida State LSU, no offense to, no offense, no offense, no, take offense, Alabama, Texas, take offense. Oregon, Washington is this week. It's gigantic. We're really going to dive into that. But first, the Frantic 14. Here we go. Doug Maurice and Bill Landis on Kings of the North. First up, the North is dominating the rest of the regular season, Landis. There are 11 undefeated teams in the Power 69, sixth in the set in the South, Louisville, Florida State, North Carolina, Oklahoma, USC, and Georgia, five in the North. The only times any of those teams in the five North teams, people should know, Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan, Oregon, Washington. The games left between those teams are round robin in the Big Ten East with Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, and a round robin in the Pac-12, Washington, Oregon, USC. Those are the six big... Now, they're not all going to stay undefeated because they're going to beat each other. But those are the six biggest games left this regular season. Georgia doesn't play anybody the rest of the year. North Carolina and Florida State and Louisville all in the ACC. They don't play each other. Oklahoma just beat Texas. They played no... There's nobody else in the Big 12. I just want people to know, if you're not paying attention to Northern football... Pay attention. If you're late, fine. But you got to get in now. The sport is all about the North in the last half of the regular season, is it not? It certainly is. Uh, people need to jump on board. I, I'm excited that it is. Uh, I, I The thing that I hope is, like we treat it as such, right? That's what we're here for. I hope college football at large does, right? I want to see Fox mm. and I want to see ESPN like blowing this out. I want to see game day and big noon kickoff like telling people that they need to be looking upward north. For yeah. the biggest games remaining on the college football season. Stop Stop with the Southern glance. This is where the big boys are playing ball up here. Look up. I like it. They made a movie about that, but I think it was about climate change. <laughs> this is just look up for football. I like to think of t-shirt slogans. That might be one of them. So we get ready this week. Oregon at Washington. Next week, Penn State at Ohio State. November 4th, Washington at USC. November 11th, two big ones. Michigan at Penn State and USC at Oregon. And then, of course... Last week in the regular season, Ohio State at Michigan. Six games. You're going to hear about them a lot here, but tell your friends, get locked in for Northern football. Frantic topic number two, USC's defense stinks, Landis, and you want to make sure the North lets everybody know. They, they have to do something about it. I'm tired of these guys. Get them out of my face. Like I'm, I'm sick of watching Alex Grinch try to coordinate a defense and have people try to convince us that USC is worth talking about in the national conversation when their defense is atrocious. They're number 112 in the country in total defense. They're 86 in the country in defensive efficiency, and someone needs to make them pay for it. And those someones now remaining on USC schedule are, are largely of the North. Like one game we didn't have on that list, Doug, is, is Notre Dame versus USC this week. Like they they get the first crack at it. It's Notre Dame, Utah gets them. 
maybe Utah is not the best, uh, you know, uh, candidate to do that. We'll see. They get Cam Rising and Brent Keithy back, maybe. Washington, certainly a candidate. Oregon is a candidate. If USC gets to the Pac-12 title game, which I hope they don't, uh, maybe they'll see one of these teams again. But somebody needs to put USC in its place and get it out of the conversation because they do not deserve to be there because their defense stinks. John Wilner, one of the best voices on the Pac-12, uh, tweeted in the midst of USC surviving uh, in triple overtime against Arizona that he feels like USC has to make a, a change at defensive coordinator. Uh, in the middle of this season with Alex Grinch last week, USC outgained by Arizona 506 yards to 365, managed to win. The week before, outgained by Colorado 564 yards to 498. They have the best player in college football. I don't think Caleb Williams should or will win the Heisman, but he's the best player. That's not what the Heisman is, by the way. But even he can't keep up. He <laughs> can't keep up with Alex Grinch's terrible defense. So, They've survived so far, but it has to come to an end at some point. Point number three on the Frantic 14. Notre Dame needs a conference, and Notre Dame needs a break, man. <laughs> For the, it's the first time in Notre Dame history of playing four straight primetime games. Loss at home on the literally the last second of the game to Ohio State. Tight, close win, just as close at Duke. Now they lost at Louisville. Now they're coming home to get USC this week. This is one of these things. They they have this agreement with the ACC, right, where I think they play eight uh, six ACC games a year. But then they have their own network for their home games that they have to please NBC. And the result is everybody wants a piece of them. And I just don't think, Landis, if they were in a conference, as much as Ohio State gets like, hey, go to Minnesota on a Thursday night to open the season in prime time, I don't think if Ohio State didn't want it, the Big Ten would make Ohio State play four straight primetime games. Notre Dame trying to serve too many people at the same time. They just needed a noon start against Rutgers in there. Yeah. And they didn't get it. And and I think some people are like, Notre Dame's not for real. I still think they're a very good team. We just saw it coming. They ran out of gas. And it's because they're trying to be everything to everybody. My, so my read on that game was wrong. I, I thought that I was worried about that in the Duke game. And I actually did think it kind of showed up and they, and they pulled that game out. But I thought like that was such an exhale moment for them to win that game, that they would like flip a switch and get rolling. And, and that did seem to, to carry over into the Louisville game. Now, like I'm not saying that as an excuse, right? Cause I think Notre Dame like didn't play its best football and, you know, probably, you know, should have won the last two games it's played. Um, but you're right. Like you're not they're They're not doing themselves any favors by, by doing this now in a 12 team playoff world, I guess it's different, right? You're less concerned about it, but even then in a 12 team playoff world, it's like, you're grinding yourself into the dirt before you get to that, get to that point. Um, it's okay to, you know, join, join a conference. It has good football, right? Join the big 10. You're still going to play the Ohio States, the Oregon's, the Washington's USC's UCLA's Michigan, Penn state, but you're not going to play them all in the same season. And they're going to sprinkle in a Rutgers and a Northwestern for you. So you can get, have some of those get right weeks and they need those. I don't know that anybody thought that Duke and Louisville were both going to be undefeated when they played Notre Dame this year. So they're playing also at night four straight undefeated teams because yep. they, they beat Duke. That was Duke's first loss. So when you said, hey, Ohio State might be undefeated, USC might be undefeated. And then if you would have said before the season and in between Duke and Louisville will both be undefeated. You'd be like, what are you talking about? So you didn't exactly see it coming. It's just it's a lot to ask. This is one of those things. They're every, they're a draw. They're 49, 39 and two on the road all time in prime time for cons considering it's Notre Dame. That's not a great record. 
And yes, it's yeah. on the road, but it's like they're everybody gets up for them. It's the kind of thing Ohio State says all the time. Four in a row, prime time, which is too much to ask. All right, number four in the Frantic Four team. We're going to talk about Iowa's defense without saying the B word, because I, I do feel a little bit bad that every time we talk about Iowa's defense, it's in the context of their terrible other thing led by the B word. Iowa has allowed in six games 42 points in the first half, 3-3-10-10-9-7. They've allowed seven field goals and three touchdowns in the first half. And the reason I'm focused on the first half, they've had a couple games where they've given up touchdowns like in the final two minutes to make a two-score game a one-score game. But it's kind of like with a toddler. Like you want to be patient. The defense is putting up gates while the toddler offense led by the B word is trying to learn to walk. And so the first half, they're like, here, we'll shut the other guys down. You guys try. I, now I'm doing it again. I couldn't make it all the way through about talking about the good Iowa defense without the offensive context. That's a remarkable thing. Cooper DeGene is as good as they come in the backfield. Xavier Wampa at safety is playing great. Sebastian Castro at the opposite corner has played really well. They don't give up any yards after the catch. They tackle. They get pressure. They had 12 tackles for loss last week against Purdue. Just a reminder, it's a good defense on its own, regardless of what else is happening at Iowa. They've been good all year, right? That the thing that was a kind of a missing piece for them was was that defensive front getting after it a little more, and they did that against Purdue. But they have six sacks in that game, right? Um, yep. And twelve tackles for loss, like you said. It sounds like they're going to get Noah Shannon back, the guy who was uh, suspended for the gambling stuff that was happening out there. So that's another piece added to their defensive front. They're really good. I mean, they're always really good. We take it for granted, I think, how good they are, and they unfortunately get get overshadowed by you know what's happening on the other side of the ball, which is an atrocity. But um, they play championship level defense, like more often than not, they have played championship level defense under Kirk Ferentz. So I'm happy to shout them out for doing so. And I feel like I probably talked about Hudson Card at quarterback for Purdue too much this year, but again, it's like against some guys who he, he's a guy who had a chance to do something right. And, mm -hmm. and the, the defense is just too good. All right. Number five in the frantic 14. I just want to talk about Oregon state. Cause I think they're going to disappear for a while here. They do get UCLA, UCLA this week and UCLA is, is ranked, but then it's at Arizona at Colorado and Stanford before Oregon state finishes the season with Washington and Oregon. So they're going to like for about five weeks, we may not be talking about them as much on this show. DJ Uyunglele played great against Cal. 19 of 25 for 275 and five touchdowns. It's the first five touchdown performance by an Oregon State quarterback since 2019. They're five and one. They're 15th in the AP poll. Like, I just think they are really an excellent football team that just kind of caught Washington State on a really good week when Washington State beat them. I don't know. It's not that I feel bad for them because I just, I, I just don't want people to forget because I think if they can win one of the final two, against Oregon or Washington, I think they might be in the Pac-12 title game like with two losses, like with some tiebreaker stuff. Like they still have a chance, but after a, a nice win over a Cal team that can move the ball, just a reminder, Oregon State, good. You see, see, I don't love giving up 40 to Cal. And I know one of the touchdowns is like on a short field with a weird decision to do an onside kick, but uh, 40, I think, is the most that Cal has scored this year. Or no, sorry, second most. They scored 58 on North Texas, 10 against Auburn, 31 against Idaho, 32 against Washington, 24 against Arizona State, and then 40 against Oregon State. So you're doubting the Beavs? We're going to talk talk about uh, the flaws of the top Northern team, so I'll save it for then. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm slightly less high. Be nice. Yeah. 
to Oregon State. They stole their conference from them. You know that, right? I do know that. I do feel bad for you. Pat McAfee trying no, to bring no, no, it to no. Oregon State. Just doing it for clicks, man. Come on. Give him some no. respect. No, not Pat McAfee. All right. All right. I'm going to rip people now. Planting my flag, number six on the Frantic 14. Uh, SEC math, man. It's the worst kind of math there is. Kentucky got to 5-0 and and number 20 in the AP poll this season by beating Ball State, Eastern Kentucky, Akron, Vanderbilt, and Florida. Those five teams were combined 10-20 and this season, and one of those wins is because Florida beat Vanderbilt. They all stink, but people are like, oh, Kentucky. So then Kentucky gets rolled by Georgia in, honestly, the first complete game that Georgia's played this season, and now everybody's like, Georgia's back because puffed-up Kentucky was never who they thought they were, but now it's somehow some glorious win for Georgia to beat them by 30. The, the math on Bama's back because, like, Texas was great because they beat Bama. Texas was never that good. That's bad SEC math. Now Bama's back because Bama beat Old Miss and Texas A&M, two programs whose fans want to fire their coaches all the time. You can't want to fire Lane Kiffin and Jimbo Fisher one day and then be like, Bama's back because they beat them the next. SEC math is bad for your brain. Don't fall for it. It is not approved on the AP standardized test. SEC math, man, it doesn't add up. Don't get trapped. Plant your flag, Landis. <laughs> uh, the uh, the most complete team in all of college football resides in the North, and that team is the Michigan Wolverines, mm. uh, who I, I – listen, if you're out there screaming they ain't played anybody yet, like I hear you, but they're squashing everybody, and I feel like they're getting better. And they have seven rushing touchdowns the last two weeks. They just throttled Minnesota, had their highest per carry average running the football last week against Minnesota. And that's the like kind of the area that I question for them. Like, what's up with your run game? It feels like they're getting that figured out. J.J. McCarthy has been very good. Uh, we'll talk about that when we talk about the top teams in the North. Um, I, you know, there's some there's some questions I have for sure. They're not they're not infallible, but I do think they're most complete both sides of the ball. Their defense is nasty. And they're getting Mason Graham back now on the, on the defensive line, too, who we've not talked about when we've discussed the best players in the North. But I think that conversation might be coming because he is a, a difference maker in a group in a defensive line that might be the best Jim Harbaugh's had. And I know they had Aiden Hutchinson like depth and overall talent. This might be the best one they've had and their defensive tackles are very good. I put them up against anybody in, in the nation um, and they're good at all three levels on defense. So they're squashing who's in front of them. I wish they played a more difficult schedule. I wish they had like somebody with a pulse. In their non-conference slate, they did not. They're not going to play a game of consequence until they play Penn State in November, so it's still wait-and-see mode. But what I've seen so far from them, I, th I think they are the most complete team in college football. And that will lead us right into our Northern team rankings where we are going to talk about what, what is the issue for all these really good teams. That wraps up the Frantic 14 Northern rankings coming next on Kings of the North. Doug Maurice and Bill Landis back on Kings of the North. We do it every week here. I think, uh, no, we did it last week. We do this every week. We change the player rankings sometimes. We did some unit rankings. We do quarterback rankings. We're going to do receiver rankings later. Uh, but the best teams, the kings of the North, we, we try to do that every week. And so we rank the teams that we think are worth being ranked, Landis. We are not beholden to a top five. We're not beholden to a top 10. A little bit in my mind, I sort of say to myself, like, who are still legitimate playoff contenders. So once you're kind of out of that, it's sort of like, I don't know. It's not it's no disrespect, but it's like, well, you know, you're still good. But am I going to bother to figure out whether you're seventh in the north or ninth in the north? I, I don't know. 
all these teams are still in that mix. Let's get to our Northern rankings this week. One is Michigan. And last week, they weren't one. They did something this week to uh, to get noted, to move past Washington. Washington is two. Ohio State and Penn State are tied for third. Oregon five. Oregon State six. Utah seven. Tied for seventh with Washington State. Uh, I did not rank Notre Dame, which is why Notre Dame didn't make this list. You did. The qualifying mm. threshold is get ranked by both of us as we do this and do an overall combined consensus rankings. So we're going to start with the flaws of these teams. And as you let us into this with Michigan, Michigan is number one. And I think the reason they're number one is because it's harder to find their flaws because we did unit rankings last week. And it's like, Hey, the Penn state defense, Hey, the Washington offense, Hey, the Ohio state defense. But when you talk about both sides of the ball, nobody in the North, and I think nobody in the country is as good on both sides of the ball as Michigan right now. I did kind of write down a weakness, but I'm curious to hear you say what you think Michigan's weakness might be. If you would have asked me two weeks ago, I, I probably would have kept saying the, the line I've been saying about them. Like I think they need to run the ball better than they currently are, but they've sort of answered that I think the last two weeks. And not that they're complete, but like they're they're climbing the rankings. I think I think the first time I mentioned they might have been like 68th in the country and rushing rushing and now they're top 40. Like they seem to be finding their footing. There's still some weird stuff there happening with Donovan Edwards. I, I don't know why he's not been effective and he hasn't scored yet this year, which is really strange. So like it's kind of Blake Corum or nothing, which I guess is not tremendous and could be considered a weakness of theirs because I thought the two backs last year were certainly a strength and I don't know that they they are right now um so i this is like I, I tweaked it a little bit i guess like I don't, I don't know that i consider this a weakness but i i still want to see more before i guess i can fully grasp the idea of them being able to throw the ball the way they need to when it matters most and and jj mccarthy has improved in those areas this year like if you look at his numbers this year compared to last year non-play action throws versus play action throws there was a significant dip in his efficiency when he was throwing on non-play action throws last year this year he's much better he's two full yards per attempt better on non-play action throws than he was last year his passer rating on non-play action throws is like 30 points higher than it was last year so so he has made those improvements but you know he's not really had to show it yet against a defense that i think can give michigan problems so Maybe that's not quite a weakness. It's still a question in my mind, but that was kind of the first thing that leaped to mind for me when I considered the question for them. I've been saying all year, and I think most people would agree with that. There's not a super team in college football this year, not like Georgia in 21, not like LSU in 19, not like Bama in 20. I don't think Georgia last year was a super team. They were really good, but they weren't a super team. I think if there is one, it's Michigan. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think there is one. But if there is, if you're looking for somebody who's just squashing people, this is your leading candidate. I really like Florida State. Week to week, both sides of the ball, they are not a machine like Michigan is. Uh, You know, Georgia, I guess, played better. I I don't think Georgia has played like Michigan for most of the year. Washington's offense is relentless, but I think when you're talking defensively, they don't stack up to Michigan right now. And then Penn State's defense is awesome. Offensively, they aren't close to stacking up to Michigan. And Ohio State's very good, but Ohio State's working some stuff out in a way that I don't think Michigan's working stuff out right now. I think mm-hmm. Michigan's there. So they are in the FEI rankings, which which I really like. Uh, Brian Fremo, it's like stuff that it's it doesn't take recruiting into account and that kind of thing. They're third in the nation in offense and fourth in defense. So they're kind of everything explosive plays on offense. They don't have a ton. 
they have 11 plays of 30 yards or more, which is um, tied for 39th in the power five. So they're not super explosive, but they don't kind of need to be because they just grind it out. And it's almost more effective for them to not be explosive and just smother you. So that's one thing I wrote down. And then the other thing is the schedule is what it is. Now, again, they, they had the UCLA series canceled. The next two years, they have Texas and Oklahoma scheduled in the non-conference over the next four seasons. So they do want to do this, right? They play Notre Dame a lot in the non-conference. So, I mean, it's it's a bad spot for them the last two years. They did. Question, they they canceled UCLA though, right? No, I know, I know, but it's okay. not like they. It's not like their history is never playing anybody. Yeah. It's just last year and this year not playing anybody. So, do you think that could actually hurt them though? It makes it more difficult to judge them. Do you think it, it makes it more likely they might lose to Penn State because they're going to face Penn State having played nobody? Like, is that a like a is that a flaw in that way that because a flaw is something that can actually hurt you not just hurt our perception of you. Yeah, I think that's possible. I kind of, I think similarly, similarly of Oregon too, um, which I guess we'll talk about, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to gauge what those flaws might be because they haven't played anybody, but I, but I suppose like inexperience in big games up until the moment you have to play one, which for Michigan, like, I don't, I don't think you want to be playing your first game like that in November, right? I think you, you want some early tests and they just don't have them. So it's not that I don't think they're built for it because like that, that they have a, a lot back from last year and they were in a playoff game and they played Ohio State and beat Ohio State the last two years. So I'm, I'm not super worried about it, but I guess that could be considered a flaw. And again, we're not like the, the intent is not to talk down our best northern teams. It's to be realistic. And and somebody had actually mentioned this to us of obviously people know we do, you know, Ohio State stuff and we end up talking about what's wrong with Ohio State a lot. And somebody said, well, can we talk about what's wrong with other teams? And I think it's a good way to look at teams. I, I do yep. think it's interesting. So we'll go to number two, Washington. For me, Washington, like their sack rate and their stuff rate defensively is not very high. They're not very aggressive defensively. They are 122nd in the nation out of 133 teams in tackles for loss per game. And they are 124th in the nation in sacks per game. So... Like if, if it gets down to it and they can't only destroy people with their offense and they face a good defense like they're going to this week, and we'll talk about it more obviously at the end of the show, I do wonder, Landis, if, you know, Braylon Trice is a pretty good edge guy, but I, I wonder if they're just open to getting rolled by a good offense, which is going to force them into a shootout where maybe they're not getting stops because they can't make the kind of play on a second or third down to force a punt. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair concern because, I, I, I mean, I also went to the defensive side of the ball, obviously. Um, and there are a few things you can nitpick there. They're terrible in the red zone on defense. They've given up 10 touchdowns and 14 trips. Uh, their last two opponents, uh, Cal or not Cal, uh, Arizona. Um, yeah, Cal and Arizona, the last two games, seven for seven scoring touchdowns in the red mm. zone. Um, not good because I don't think like they're not a tremendous defense to begin with. I think they might have like an average defense. And part of that's disappointing because I think we thought this front was going to be pretty good. And I don't know that they've been that good so far, but if they encounter a team that can move the ball a little bit at the moment, those teams are finishing drives with touchdowns, which is not great. Now, if there's any team in the country that is equipped to play and thrive in a shootout, it's probably Washington. But uh, I don't know if you want to test that, right? If you're them and they're going to get tested, I think in that regard, uh, coming up this Saturday. So I think they need to tighten up on, on defense and maybe, maybe it's an instance of a talented team, like playing with its food a little bit. Like we see teams do that. Um, so like, I'm willing to entertain that notion, but 
it needs to be better than it's been because I do think it's something that can bite them. And, you know, we're nitpicking him a little bit. You know, I, I do think Jabbar Muhammad is like a legit number one corner for them. Braylon Trice is a legit edge guy for them. So they have some they have some pieces. So they, they might get better at this. But for right now, it's the thing that could bite them. Let's go to number three on our list. Tied with Ohio State is Penn State. Uh, this this one, I think, is I think we're going to be in agreement on this. What do you, what do you think the, the flaw for Penn State is? Uh, I didn't want to be g- as gen- general as just saying the offense, although I think you could. <laughs> An entire um, side of the ball. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you could. Um, it's for me the same thing you said about Michigan. It's the lack of explosion. Yeah, uh, they're number eighty-seven in the country in plays of ten yards or more. There are three teams in the country who have fewer plays of thirty yards or more than Penn State. Those teams are Ball State, Minnesota, and Sam Houston State. And I think part of that is wanting to gradually work in a new starting quarterback and drew Aller. And I think they're doing that. But I also think part of it is that they're just, you know, they don't have a ton of talent. I don't think on that side of the ball, I think they're probably fairly average at receiver. And they thought they were going to be better with some transfer additions. And I don't think they're as good as I thought they would be. They're not running the ball as well as I think they thought they would with, with Nick Singleton and Katron Allen. And I don't think that offensive line um, outside of Olu Fashanu's, pass blocking prowess has been particularly good for them this year. So I think that they are, they're not a bad offense, but I think they're like an average offense. And I, th- I think people came into the season thinking that Penn state had the chance to be like a top 25 kind of offense in the country. And they're certainly not that. I, I really zeroed in on the passing game. Drew Aller's average depth of target is 6.4 yards, which is actually tied with Bo Nix at Oregon. It's 26th um, among Northern quarterbacks. It's only 28 teams in the north so but oregon's is very different like oregon is all about yards after the catch and bo Nix is getting it out and guys are going that's not what penn state is so oregon's throwing short by design i think penn state's throwing short because they can't do anything else and it's just gonna put a lot on that defense right mm-hmm. when you think about how they're gonna have to go about trying to beat michigan or ohio state I mean, I think both those games, they have to try to keep them in the 20s, right? And the way Michigan grinds it out on offense and the explosive potential of Ohio State, I don't know how easy that will be to do, even for arguably the best defense in the country. So maybe by that time, Landis, they'll let it rip. Maybe they're 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 playing with their food a little bit. Maybe by design, they're trying to hold some things back because they, they know they can win with basically only defense so far. But it's... This is as I think this is as big of a flaw as any very good northern team has is is the sort of very mundane lack of explosiveness for Penn State's offense. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And it's it's just it's more glaring because we thought it would be good, right? Everyone was really excited about about Drew Aller and you know, like this is the best offensive line that James Franklin has had, which still might be true, but they've they've not been as good as as they hoped they hoped they would be, um, which is disappointing for them. So yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing Penn State at the moment being capable of scoring enough points to win either of their two big games. But their defense is so good, I still think they're one of the five best teams in the country because that's how yeah. good that defense is. Yeah, well, so I mean, like again, yeah. now I feel bad about this whole segment. No, nope, can we just we talk about the different ways the best northern teams make their fans happy? Or We're keeping them like, honest. We're keeping them honest. It's necessary. So, um, but I I think it's reassuring when we're talking about everybody's flaws except your team's flaws because that <laughs> that is the point of this you know your team's flaws 
but I think it is valuable. You know what I want to do? Let's do George's flaws. Can we shove this in? Mike didn't make a graphic for it. Can we just add George's flaws? They have no receivers. Is that a flaw? Their entire offense is centered around one person. Okay, I'm not doing that. But like we could. Now we should have done that. We'll do that next week. Here's what's wrong with Southern football. All right, tied with Ohio State. Uh, tied with Penn State is Ohio State. Tied for third in our rankings. What's Ohio State's flaw, Landis? Uh, I I I think there are a few different things on offense you can pick, but I picked the offensive line. Like, um, they can't run the ball. We'll see if that matters. But I also still question their ability to protect Kyle McCord when they like play a Penn State and when they play a Michigan. Um, I don't think they've played a team yet with a tremendous pass rush. They played a team with a pretty no. good defensive line in Notre Dame, but they're not a defensive line that like really gets after you. No. They're going to see one in two weeks when Penn State comes yes. comes to Columbus, and like I'm nervous about that if I'm Ohio State. Um, I'm nervous about Michigan if I'm Ohio State. I might be nervous about Wisconsin if only because it's hard to communicate when you're playing at Camp Randall, even if Wisconsin's defense isn't like a world beater. Um, so like I think this offensive line is – bad <laughs> like it's it's not, they're not, they're not in a good place right now that's why we did a two-hour tackle podcast tackle yeah. youtube show before the season on kings of columbus uh it's coming to fruition and the odd thing about it is the guy that we thought was the most locked in donovan jackson has just not played well at left guard that like we thought that was an anchor and it feels like instead and you don't want to make excuses it's like oh it's everybody else's fault but you know he's he's between two new starters at left tackle and center and instead of you know, him helping lift everybody up. It feels like that situation is dragging him down a little bit, which is a tough spot to be in. Um, within that, I just sort of talked about the, and Ryan days talked about it. Bill Connolly at ESPN had good stats about they're just behind schedule all the time because they're not effective on first and second down. They wind up in third and longs and, and that's based on an inability and repeated attempt to run the ball on early downs and the inability is based on the lack of run blocking by the offensive line. Because I think that's, of all the things you talked about, yeah, Chop Robinson might make him pay off the edge in that Penn State game. But for now, they just look lost. They look mm. lost in the run game a lot of the time. And it's throwing them off until they decide to run it far less. It's going to continue to be a huge issue. Yeah, number they're running. Five. I think, yeah, they're running too much. Yep. Oregon is number five. Not, not quite as obvious this is you know this is a this is a pretty good Oregon team I don't know that I believe this they are so reliant on this short passing thing um of all the receivers in the north they have four receivers in the top 17 and yards after catch because everything is yards after catch there's nothing there's Troy Franklin's really good he he can be a downfield threat for them but I just wonder if you can do something and easier said than done, but to sort of just tackle guys on the short throws, I, I, they're so designed to play offense that way. I wonder if you can force them to try to beat you over the top. But then by the way, they have a sixth year quarterback who's been through the mill and a number one receiver in Troy Franklin. So maybe they can, I don't know, maybe the flaws on the defensive side of the ball though. What'd you have for Oregon? The same thing as you like, can, can, can they adapt if a team comes out and like shuts down their their screen game and their short passing game? And and I don't know. Like look at their schedule, right? They they play Utah. I think Utah is probably the the best candidate for that. Like I don't even think Washington is, to be perfectly honest. Um, Oregon State maybe if they play them because I, I do like Oregon State's defensive front. Uh, maybe they can kind of disrupt some of that stuff. But 
it was hard to find one. I, and I think it's hard to find one for similar reasons to Michigan. It's that like the schedule just hasn't given us an opportunity, I think, to unearth yeah. some of that stuff. They've, they've just not played really anybody of note. And I, I guess they played like Texas Tech close and like Texas Tech threw the ball on them a little bit, although they, they had three interceptions in that game. Maybe that was more Tyler Shuck than it was to, uh, Oregon doing anything. So maybe that's it. Maybe like, and, and obviously that'd be important if they're going up against Washington this week, but it was, it was difficult to really pinpoint one. So I also settled on like, can you, can you bomb it down the field or, or run the football if teams take you out of what you've done most effectively on offense to this point? And I don't know if their defense is great. I do think their defense has been better than Washington's defense. So it's not mm-hmm. as glaring as like, Hey, we went to Washington. We went straight to the, to the defensive side of the ball for them. Uh, number six in our rankings is Oregon State. I just put like, I like them. I just, I just put like overall talent level. I just think they're climbing up the hill a little bit, and especially when they get to Oregon and Washington, it it might just be too much. Now, Damian Martinez is a dude in the backfield, and DJ Uyunglele was a five star, and they have two, they have multiple really like real dudes on the offensive line. And by the way, when we get to the receivers, I'm gonna I'm gonna be very excited to talk about Silas Bolden. But like I don't know. Just compared to everybody else on this list, I just wonder if when push comes to shove, they're a, a little bit an overachieving team that isn't gonna hang. Do you have more specific criticism criticisms of my beeves? <laughs> I, I think just that that dynamic might show up the most in their secondary when they play a Washington or a, any team that's really capable of throwing the ball, which happened, I think, against Washington State earlier this year. Their pass defense just scares me. I don't think it's very good. Um, and there are teams on this schedule that are certainly capable of exploiting that, which is why I have come off of my thought that they could win the Pac-12 this year. I just don't know that they're built to stop the thing they're going to have to stop to get there. Um, and like generally, I think their defense is is okay. I don't think it's a tremendous defense. But especially on the back end, I think they are they are deficient there in a few areas where, that I think are going to get exposed. And then it's just like, oh, so you got a little tiny deficiency in the back end. Here's Cam Ward, Caleb Williams, Michael Penix, and Bo Nix to exploit that yeah. time after time after time. It's a tough world to live in. All right, last two teams on our list. One is Washington State. What'd you have for them? Turnovers. Um, they turned the ball over a lot. <laughs> they turned the ball over four times against UCLA last week and lost that game. They've turned it over nine times this year. They turned it over 17 times in 13 games last year. They just don't value the football. Enough. Yeah. Whether, whether that's like Cam Ward throwing interceptions or Cam Ward holding the thing like it's a I don't know, loaf of bread in his hand while he's running around with it. They had some like terrible open field fumbles against UCLA. Like they they just have to they can't have those miscues. They're not talented enough to overcome them when they're playing the best teams in the Pac-12. So I think that is a, it's the thing they need to nip in the bud, and if they don't, they're not going to really contend in this league. As somebody who is constantly asking Ohio State to stop running the ball, I'm reluctant to say this, and I know this is Washington State style. This is what they want to do. They're second in the nation in passing yards per game at 365. They're 119th in rushing yards per game at 104, and they were the same last year, and they're basically like, this is what they are. But it that might be the breaking point for me, right? Yeah. Like that's like they did not look really good, very good against UCLA. I, I think they might have had like 20 yards rushing in the loss to UCLA last week. So that it's like, okay, like don't run it, but like not like that. More than 20 yards a game when you're playing a good opponent. So I thought that yeah. was a little bit rough. Uh, last team is Utah tied with Washington State in our rankings. Their offense hasn't been great because their quarterback and their best 
guy with the ball in his hands have been out the whole year. So like offense, what'd you, yeah, have? yeah, it's, it's that, but it's like, it's with the, an asterisk, I guess. Yeah. Like you get, you get Cam rising back and you get Brent Keithy back. It's a different conversation. I guess there's the question, even, even if you do get both those back, both those guys back, like what is, what's the ceiling? I don't think it's like you suddenly go from one of the worst offenses in the country to like a top 20 offense, but you don't need to be a top 20 offense to win when your defense is as good as Utah's is. So can they one, get those guys back and two, be good enough on that side of the ball to like kind of get back into this Pac-12 race. Cause if they if they don't get it's mostly Cam Rising, I think. If they don't get Cam Rising back, um, I think they have no shot. Like they're like we've said before, they're Iowa if they don't get him back. This is a team that two years ago got into a shootout with Ohio State in the Rose Bowl and hung until the final seconds. So it's not like they're incapable. It's going to be a tight end focused offense, but they they know how it looks when it's working. It's just not working so well when they're starting quarterbacks hurt. All right, that's it for our rankings of our top teams in the North. Next up, we'll go behind enemy lines with the teams in the South you need to worry about. No, not worry, not worry. There's no worrying. Be curious about. Next on Kings of the North. We do it every week. We go behind enemy lines. We give you the top five teams in the South. This doesn't change the number. It's always the top five. Listen, there's 69 teams in the power five. We only took 28. There's 41 other teams to choose from. We should have, we should be like thinking about 18 different teams to squeeze into this top five, but that's not what we're doing this year. We're trying to find teams. Number one, for the second week in a row, Maybe because I picked them with the national championship, and I'm still beholden to that a little bit. They have not looked great. Florida State has two nice wins over LSU and Clemson. They have not been necessarily hitting on all cylinders since then, but they are still number one in our behind enemy lines ranking. Two is Georgia. Three is Oklahoma. Four is Texas coming off the loss to Oklahoma. Five is USC. And Landis voted for Bama, but I didn't. Beat, beat beat a team who doesn't want to fire its coach, and you can be in the top five, Alabama. So I know everyone thinks Bama's coming. Like, let me know when they're here. Can you let me know? Can Nick give us a heads up when they're here? Or are they maybe going to go back to Tyler Buckner as their starting quarterback again? What? They changed. They went from a starting quarterback. They made Buckner the starting quarterback. Now he's like their fifth quarterback. Let us know. Can we get a signal? Can someone in Tuscaloosa send a carrier pigeon to let us know when Bama's back? Florida State's number one, Landis. I know you didn't vote them number one, mm-hmm. um, but I still, I don't know. I'm not there on Georgia. Georgia's two. How do you think about Florida State and Georgia right now? <clears throat> I think Georgia looked like Georgia last week, which I know you disagree with, and it's fine. Um, Florida State, uh, has like they keep winning, right? I think they've been yeah. un- unimpressive, um, aside from those two wins, and those two wins have a lot of shine taking off them. But it turns out LSU has the worst pass defense in the country. So, uh, <laughs> so I wish I wish I would have known that before picking them to win the national championship. But here we are. Um, so, like I think Florida State is good, like good on both sides of the ball, good on both good on both lines. Certainly explosive, but the their schedule or their the the caliber of their opponents are like unraveling a little bit which is like no fault of their own just has me questioning them a little bit and like certain georgia's not played anybody right but um they we'll see if what they did last week was them like finding another gear and like starting to ratchet it up maybe it wasn't like we've seen i wonder like how much 2015 ohio state is in this 
current mm. Georgia team. And if like we think they got stuff figured out, and then someone's still gonna still gonna get them, I think that's on the table. Uh, but they looked really good. Um, so I put them one. I had Florida State fifth actually. I had Oklahoma two, and Texas three, and I had Alabama four, as you said, because I yeah. think Alabama is good. I, I can't believe you put USC there. I like I didn't even consider ranking USC. I'm done with that team. They stink. Caleb Williams is now Caleb Williams like didn't even complete half his passes uh, against Arizona, but he just bails them out with ridiculous things. He does ridiculous things. He is an unbelievable playmaker. And yeah. so in a world where I am, I remain uncertain about Bama and Jalen Milrow in his own way is a playmaker. But like, if I'm uncertain, I'll take the team with the quarterback. The team I want to talk briefly about is Oklahoma. You know, I, I had been saying that I still think the big 10 is in very good position to get two teams in the playoff. Um, the SEC is going to get a team in, whether they really truly deserve it or not. We'll we'll see how that shakes down. The Pac-12 is just a there's like five or six good teams in the Pac-12, so I, I don't know how that's going to shake out. I certainly think Washington very well may be and looks looks so far like one of the four best teams in the country. I just don't know if the schedule and the way things are going to shake out will allow that. The wild card is the Big 12 to me because Oklahoma just beat Texas. And I don't know who else is going to get Oklahoma. And it might wind up being an Oklahoma-Texas rematch in the Big 12 title game. And then what if Texas wins that game? I mean, this last one went down to the final seconds. Then you have two one-loss Big 12 teams. I, I don't I don't I don't know who else is going to get in Oklahoma's way with the schedule they have. Do you think Oklahoma might be actually good? Or are they just taking advantage of Texas is not as good as anyone thought? And um, the Big 12 doesn't have a great team. Um, yeah, I think I actually I like Oklahoma. I think Oklahoma's good. I know like they messed around a little bit with Cincinnati. I think that defense is like much better than it was last year. It does seem like Brent Venables has like kind of gotten that figured out. And there were times earlier this year where you like watch Dylan Gabriel, like, oh, I don't know if that's the guy. Like, is Jackson Arnold yeah. going to play? Um, but Dylan Gabriel has seemed to bounce back well too. And I thought he played well against Texas. So I actually I think both those teams are pretty good. Um, I don't I don't know that I think both of them are going to make the playoff because um, I don't think the Big 12 is good enough to prop them both up like that. But there'll be an interesting decision to be made, I guess, on the part of the playoff committee if they, these two teams play each other again in the Big 12 championship, which seems likely, and Texas wins that game and they have a split there. I don't, I don't know what you do in that case. They can't. No, they're not both going to make it. I just I don't know yeah. if, if either would make it at 12-1, and one, depending how things shake down. If they – I don't know. Depending I mean, on that Texas, if, Yeah, if Texas – because I think the Texas win over Alabama is going to continue to look better. Um, and if they like right or wrong. Did Nick send you a message? Them. Did Nick let you know they're here? No. You're, you're believing you're, it? He's here. I'm not. They're, they're their here. defense is awesome. Their defense is tremendous. Like it's incredible. They're the they're the inverse of USC, but I think that you, Alabama's defense is better than USC's offense in like the national context. Um and maybe Alabama's offense is worse than USC's defense, but like Jalen Milrow also makes like three throws a game. We're like, well, if you just did that all the time, you'd never lose yeah. a game. Um, so I don't, I'm not tremendously confident they're going to figure stuff out on offense, but I think that defense is awesome. So I think I can get help them get by. All right. That's enough. That's enough. Time to rank receivers. Knights of the North at the receiver position next on Kings of the North. All right, time to rank receivers. Is that okay we did this, Landis? I said, let's do receivers instead of players. Yeah, because actually, when you first said it, I was like, because we typically do like 15 and then pick 10 from that. 
was like, are there going to be enough to rank? And it turns out there were. Like, there's some actually really good receiver play um, in, in the North that I was uh, – I'm, I'm thankful that we're going to get to enlighten people here. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there's maybe like three tiers in our top ten here of like some mm-hmm. dudes, 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 then some really good guys, and then, you know, maybe around 10 or 11 it got a little dicey. But one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because – we call it Knights of the North. That's our overall, that's our Northern Heisman that we are eventually going to crown people in a ceremony at medieval times. But for now, it's just a list made by two men who were doing their best. And Marvin Harrison Jr. was at the top of that list at the beginning of this season. And then he had 18 receiving yards in the opener. And I was like, oh, I don't know if we can have him number one anymore. And then we haven't done player rankings every single week but I wanted to talk about Marvin Harrison Jr. Because his NFL status, his draft respect, his work ethic, his skills haven't changed. But he's had three 100-yard games this season, and then he had two games where he basically did nothing. So he's coming off eight catches for 163 yards against Maryland, and he's number one on this list of top Northern receivers, number one for both of us. He's doing it on a bad ankle that he hurt against Notre Dame, making a block. What do you think of the way Marvin Harrison Jr. played against Maryland, and where are you generally with him right now? I mean, that's the Marvin that we've all kind of come to expect, right? Um, And it's amplified by the fact that we know he's playing hurt now. Like, he played hurt last year, apparently. We didn't know that. He told us that uh, three weeks ago that he was playing on an injured ankle for much of last season, and that limited him a little bit, and he still had the season that he had. Um, But now we know he's hurt, and he came out and and played his best game of the year against Maryland after sustaining that injury against Notre Dame, which I do think it it speaks to something that maybe – people don't always appreciate about receivers just sort of generally and, and maybe about Marvin more specifically that there, you know, there can be a toughness involved with this position that I think Marvin does have, but you saw the array of ways he can help Ohio state's offense, right? He was a target over the middle of the field, which I think Ohio state needs to do more. He had an incredible catch down the sideline on a really well thrown ball from Kyle McCord on like third and 22 or something like that, whatever it was they converted. Um, and another catch on the sideline, got into the end zone. So, like that, that's what Ohio State needs every week, right? It's it's not it can't just be a momentary blip in a season that's otherwise like a little bit underwhelming compared to what we expected for, for Marvin Harrison. But if that's what we're gonna get every week, which I don't think is an unreal expectation for a guy that some people said might be the best player in all of college football coming into this season, um, then he deserves to be number one here. He has 499 receiving yards. That's 26th in the nation, it's 15th in the power five. But I didn't have a, I mean, it's more than stats, obviously. Um, he's averaging 20 yards per reception, which is really good. Like, that's big play stuff for a guy that they also throw bubble screens to at times. So I, I do think th- Marv was back. The Marvin Harrison Jr. that people got to know last year, expected for this season, even with an injury, that's who he was against Maryland. And that's why he's number one. Number two on our list is a guy who would have been one on this list while Marvin Harrison Jr. maybe wasn't having great games. And it's Romo Dunze, who has 608 receiving yards this year for Washington. He leads the North. He's fourth in the Power Five. He's great, man. Like, he he can do it after the catch. He's a big physical guy. He's really good on contested catches. He His uh, contested catch rate, according to PFF, is 62.5, which is really high. Um, 
he's a number one receiver. He's a classic number one receiver in an offense that chucks it all over the place, but he's more than the offense, right? He gets opportunities because of his play caller, because of the scheme, and because Michael Penix is great. But but this guy absolutely belongs at number two. Yeah, he and you're right. He would have been number one had we done this a, a week ago, I think. Um, he's tied for the most uh, contested catches, by the way, in the North with five. Um, there's a few guys that have five, but he, he has five, and he has a, a much larger target share and, and total targets than a lot of the players um, that are also in, in the conversation there. So, like, yeah, he's... What's impressive about Roman Dunze, which I also think is impressive about Marvin Harrison Jr., and and I guess they both benefit from, while they're the best other group, they're still in a pretty good group. But like to show up week after week and be like the top of the scouting report guy and still produce, yeah, is is incredibly impressive and something um, worth noting. I think week after week as we become a little spoiled by what some of these receivers are. Like these guys are awesome. From Bishop Gorman High School in Vegas, you know anybody else who went to Bishop Gorman? Landis Dorian Thompson Robinson yeah oh, yeah yeah great for him uh Tate Martell it's a running joke Tate Martell uh okay third is Roma Dunze's teammate and I was sort of glad that we are, were in agreement on this Jalen McMillan is third on our list he got hurt in the Michigan State game so he missed the last two games and half the Michigan State game but he has 20 catches on 24 targets this year his yards after the catch is great and I just thought he was everything you want a slot receiver to be in the first two and a half weeks of the season. And I thought he was awesome. And I thought I was glad we continued to give him that nod. They do. He almost played last uh, two weeks ago before their bye. He almost was ready. He's definitely going to play this week against Oregon. It's going to be huge to have him back. And I feel like you can feel it a little bit, right? That he's not there. It's not that like Washington's offense has been bad, but maybe it's been a little, less uh relentless is the word that you use with with yeah. Jalen McMillan out out of the lineup so part of it was understanding how good he was last year because the the body of work and sample size this year is small because of the injury but he had carried over what was a tremendous season last year into this one it was just unfortunate for him that he got hurt um and he's such a good compliment to to Roma Dunze which is like yep. I think that can when you're when you're in that world, you can get overshadowed a little bit, and I think that at times maybe has happened to Emeka Ibuka at Ohio State. Um, but uh, Jalen McMillan's ability to still shine in the world where he's playing on the field every snap with Roma Dunze um, is impressive to me. Fourth on our list is Troy Franklin of Oregon. He has 535 receiving yards, which is second in the North to Roma Dunze, another true number one guy. Uh, as we talked about, lots of yards after the catch in the Oregon offense, but I do feel like he's the one guy who can also be a threat down yeah. the field. So he is so valuable to what they do. And, and, and the way that Washington kind of kept rolling, Jalen Polk stepped in. We'll get to him in a little bit for Washington when McMillan went out. I don't know what would happen to Oregon if Troy Franklin went out because he is so primary in everything they want to do. That that's why I ranked. I had Franklin on my list third and McMillan fourth, right? And I, I think if you had it flipped, that that's totally fine. Um, but yep. that was that that was the reasoning is because I, I think I think if you if you take any any of the one out of Washington's offense, I still think that's a pretty deadly passing attack. And and I would include Roma Dunze in that, which is a credit to to Jalen Polk and Jalen McMillan. If you take Troy Franklin away from Oregon, like I think they have to rethink the way they want to play football um, because he's so important to what they do. And I and I think you're right. Like if the, on the conversation of can you if you have to get away from the screen game, can you throw it downfield over teams? I think Troy Franklin is a guy who can do that for you too. 
All right, number five on our list is the guy that you said sometimes does get underrated at Ohio State. That's Emeka Ibuka. What do you think about him being five here? Yeah, he's been a little hot or cold too, um, along with Marv. And a lot of this vote was the Notre Dame game and how mm-hmm. important he was for Ohio State there. It was like Marv didn't have a great game. Notre Dame was taking him away. Ohio State needed somebody to step up, especially kind of on third down and on that last two-minute drive where Ohio State won the game, and that guy was Emeka Ibuka. And um, I think both of them on the whole have probably not been quite as good as many thought they would be this year, which I think is less about them and more about just the transition happening at the quarterback position and the offense trying to figure out what they want to be. Um, but he's really good. And he's also, uh, I'll, no, he's hurt, right? He, he hurt his ankle against Maryland. We'll have to see how long that might hold him out. Maybe he doesn't play this week against Purdue. But I, in addition to him being a really good receiver, he is a guy who, when Ohio State like needs to get something going on the ground game, they'll just like hand a sweep to a Mecca Buka, yeah. and he'll get them nine yards, and then the offense is off and rolling a little bit. He's only uh, 27th in the North in receiving yards with 303, but there are two guys in our top 10 that are here almost entirely because of one game. Mecca Buka is one of them because Ohio State doesn't win the Notre Dame game without him. Yeah, he, He's... He has the biggest catch of the year for Ohio State, the third and 19 reception that got him down to the one um, other, you know, had an, another drive, another scoring drive that was basically all him. So he that that is enough. And again, he's viewed as a first round pick. That's enough to get him to fifth on that list. Sixth is Roman Wilson of Michigan. He has eight touchdowns. That's first in the north, tied for third in the nation. 22 catches on 29 targets. Um 382 yards is 11th in the North. He has a pretty good average depth of target for kind of like a, the the kind of player that he is. Like it's not just little dump off easy throws to him and uh, eight touchdowns isn't nothing, man. Yeah. He's, he's got a good thing going with, with JJ and he's made some impressive, I think contested catches on, on some of those touchdowns too. He only has three on the year, but I think all three might've been touchdowns. Like he's for a guy who's not gigantic. He's pretty good in contested catch situations. And, Talk about like someone who might be able to unlock a little bit of explosion for for Michigan's offense. Maybe I, I think it's him, right? There, there. I suppose there are other other candidates there. Like their tight end Colston Loveland, I think is really good. But um, Roman Wilson um, has taken a step forward. Like I don't, I don't think, I don't know that he was like really on anyone's radar in terms of like NFL guys coming into the year. But now you like read some early draft stuff of the college football season, and like Roman Wilson shows up a lot as a guy who's who's um, rising up those draft boards a little bit. Number seven is one of my favorite players in the North. It's Silas Bolden at Oregon State. He has 41 targets this season, no drops. He is 5'8", 157 pounds, and he's like a sideline deep threat guy. Like, this is not just little slants and let him run. Like, he, he is battling. He is like battling down the sideline against corners. He has 364 receiving yards. That's 15th in the North. But this guy... It's such it's a crazy combination. He is a little shot out of a cannon kind of slot receiver who also they're just like line up as an X receiver, like, okay, one-on-one deep shot, go win. And he does. So, like that combination, I don't I don't know that I've seen a guy this size ask to do the things he does, and he does them well. He is like I think sort of the embodiment of what Oregon state is right. Like doing, doing more with less, like you shouldn't be able to do the things that you're doing at that size on the outside, but, but somehow you find a way to be effective. He had a really, he had a great catch down the sideline against Cal 
um, this week, another contested catch situation. I, I don't know, really know how he does it when you watch him play. It doesn't quite compute when you look at his body type and then see some of the things he's able to do. It also makes me wonder, like, shouldn't should you use him more as a slack yeah. guy? Should you like get him the ball in space and get him the ball quickly and see what he can do with it because he is good after the catch. But if you look at his after the catch numbers, they're not quite as high as you think they would be for a guy who's built like he is because he's living the world of a six foot four X receiver, despite the fact that he's five eight. Eighth on our list is the other guy who's here almost because of one game. Because Josh Kelly destroyed Oregon State almost single-handedly, Landis. Yeah, like he had maybe three catches in that game that might be like all candidates for catch of the year. <laughs> he was doing some insane stuff um, against Oregon State. But he's another guy, too, that's like a heavy target guy who also has no drops this year, yep. like Silas Bowling. He hasn't, he hasn't dropped the pass. And they're um, they're a little more by committee, I think, in terms of the the receiver approach at Washington State. It's like a, I think I said before, it's like a lesser form of what Washington has going on. But I think all three are good, and I think you could have put any of the three on this list if you wanted to. The others being uh, Kyle Williams and Lincoln Victor, right, or the other two. Um, but yeah, the game that he had against Oregon State was absurd. And like, if you want to watch some fun receiver highlights, go pull that up. Yeah, so it's Josh Kelly of Washington State. Had a one-handed catch, like he scooped it off a guy's knee, practically. Had another touchdown where he tried to get tackled by four different guys and spun off of all of them and ran into the end zone. Had another great contested catch in the end zone. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of praise for Cam Ward, the Washington State quarterback after that game, and justifiably so, but Josh Kelly was wild, man. And so he's, he's 379 receiving yards, is 12th in the north, but like impact. Holy moly, like Washington State would not be where they are without the game he had there. Uh, ninth on our list is Keandre Lambert-Smith of Penn State, 372 yards. That's 14th in the north. 7.2 uh, yards after catch is pretty good. And again, this is – they need him, man. Like we already talked mm -hmm. about like Penn State. This is kind of all they have here. This is a huge burden for this guy. He's certainly not in Tier 1, not close to Tier 1. And I, and I don't know that he's in Tier 2. But he deserves to be like somewhere between ninth and 14th on a list like this. And they're going to need him. He might be the difference of whether Penn State can beat Ohio State and Michigan if a guy like this makes big plays. Yeah, I th like he, I, I think he is the reason that Penn State's offense to this point has been like good enough, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not been particularly great for all the reasons we discussed earlier in this episode, but I do think he's been a bit of a bright spot. And, um, he's bailed Drew Aller out a couple times too. I think on bad throws. Like I remember, like was it the West Virginia game? It was like, oh, Drew Aller tore them up and said, "Go back and watch." I was like, Drew Aller was fine, but he threw like two passes that should have been picked off, but instead, Keandre Lambert Smith caught them and took them for touchdowns. Yeah. Um, so he's he's doing that for, for them, and they desperately needed. He would be helped tremendously if like literally anyone else could step up and be a threat in the passing game. But at the moment, he's the only one doing that. So I think for that alone, he deserves to be ranked here. You're, you're right. He's not tier one. He's I don't think he's tier two. Um, and maybe maybe there are some other players across the north who are individually more talented than he is that aren't even on this list. But he's doing a lot for a team that's important in the northern conversation. He's a number two receiver who's forced to be a number one because Parker Washington went to the NFL. Yeah. And in a world where Jahan Dotson's been at Penn State and Chris Godwin's been at Penn State, Penn State has dudes at receiver. If they had a dude like that, Keandre Lambert Smith is like an awesome two. But he's he has to carry this burden because otherwise it's super young guys, it's a Mac transfer. And so, you know, he's doing it. He's doing it. But when you when you think about 
some of the other top receivers in the North. It, it doesn't quite match up. Uh, 10th is another guy who's carrying a huge load. Tied for 10th is Isaiah Williams at Illinois. He has uh, the second most targets in the North, 38 catches on 57 targets. He has practically twice as many targets as anyone else on the Illinois team. 503 yards is fourth in the North. And again, this is like a Brett Bielema, Luke Altmeyer passing attack that isn't scared anybody, but this guy's still putting up stats. Yeah, I mean, he's like, he is the offense, right? <laughs> and it's not it's not a particularly good offense, but um, would Illinois move the ball at all if they didn't have him? I, I don't I don't know that they would. He hasn't scored yet this year, which is a little odd and maybe makes his inclusion in this conversation uh, a bit strange as well. But I I've, I voted for him, and I, I guess you maybe you didn't, yep. but, or did you? Oh, yeah. I did. I did. You did. Sure, yeah. Like, uh, I think like as an partly as a nod to like as as a, a, a very few or few offenses in the north like dominate this conversation about good receivers and good passing attacks like there are guys on other teams who are incredibly talented but are just in dysfunctional systems and um, aren't getting maybe the shine they deserve because of that. Yeah, I mean you think about Bo Nix, JJ McCarthy, Michael Penix, the guys that we're talking about throwing to a bunch of these other receivers, and that's just not the situation that Isaiah Williams is in. Jalen Polk is in that situation, but he's also has two other All-American quality receivers on his team, but Jalen Polk of Washington is tied for 10th for us. He has three 100-yard receiving games this year as the third guy at Washington. He's, he's stepped up since Jalen McMillan has been hurt, but he was even good before that, 468 yards, sixth in the north for the third receiver on a team. Which, which I think makes it difficult, right, to gauge like exactly like how good are you if you're what a luxury to be the third guy on a team that has that kind of receiver and quarterback firepower. Um, but I like and I thought that about him last year, I guess not that I thought he was bad. We're just like, let's let's maybe not include him in the conversation when we're talking about other guys. But I think he's gotten much better this year. I think he's been more productive for them. And and it's helped him maybe get some of the recognition that he rightfully deserves because he's had to step up in the absence of Jalen McMillan um, the last couple of weeks. So yeah, he's, I mean, he's really good. He has the third highest PFF grade of any receiver in the North, like of anyone who has significant targets. So I'm glad we got him on here. We don't have anybody from Colorado and it's a little hard to figure out who to vote for from Colorado. Mm -hmm. They had four guys have 100 receiving yards in their opener against TCU. Xavier Weaver has 43 catches for 507 yards, which is like tremendous statistically. That's the third most in the North. But they also have Jimmy Horn Jr., 39 catches for 376. And by the way, their best player and best receiver is Travis Hunter, who's been hurt for the last month, basically. So we didn't vote for anybody there. Like Xavier Weaver's the best statistically, but the last two games he has nine catches for 46 yards combined and yeah. the last two games. So I don't this is a lot of Shador Sanders at quarterback for Colorado. This is a lot of style of play. And I sort of feel bad not having a Colorado guy in there, but I'd want to put Travis Hunter in. And we found a way to get Jalen McMillan in, even though he's been hurt. But Travis Hunter just hasn't played enough, I think, to make this list. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I I consider Travis Hunter because he's so good. Like when he's healthy, like he's so good. Um, and if we had fifteen, like we usually do fifteen and, and whittle it down to ten, we did twelve and whittled it down to ten. Like I probably would have had uh, Xavier Weaver on there if I had ranked fifteen. Yeah. So we we acknowledge there's some really good play over there, but it's sometimes you have so many good players, it's hard to pick one. Okay. Yeah. Those are our receivers. And again, I Marvin Harrison Jr., Roma Dunze. Jalen McMillan, Troy Franklin, Emeka Ibuka, Roman Wilson. 
and 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 maybe my guy Silas, but at least I think I it definitely to Abuka at five and Roman Wilson's been so good this year. I'll take those guys against anybody, wouldn't you? Like this is this yeah. is elite receiver play. It is, yeah. And I like there are tiers, right? I think maybe there's a is it after Abuka? Like I don't I don't know. It's where like you can, you can include the first five as tier one. I don't know. It's probably maybe a Harrison or Dunze tier tier yeah. one, and then the other guys, yeah. And yeah. then and then maybe down to Abuka tier two, and then yeah, so something like that. But again, the top guys are as good as they get. But an, an Abuka ceiling, I think, is to be maybe not exactly in tier one, but pretty damn close to it. I think. Yeah, and by the way, uh, Emeka Abuka is from Washington. Could have gone mm-hmm. to Washington. Man, yep. that'd be that'd be ridiculous. Okay, um, fun ranking receivers. Good to see that kind of play again. It's it's not a three yards in a cloud of dust. Uh, top of the country if it ever was so like to remind people of that sometimes also like to remind people that there is a a unqualified person employed as a big 10 coordinator we'll do the brian ferrant survivor show next all right time for the brian ferrant survivor show we do it every week about the iowa offensive offensive coordinator (laughs) iowa is uh averaging 249.2 yards per game now this is this is a good stat Last year, Iowa averaged 251.6 yards per game, Landis. That was 130 out of 131 in the FBS top level of college football, right? People know what FBS football bowl subdivision. You're not in the, you know, the FCF playoff stuff like top. Now, so so the worst they could have been last year was 131 because there were only, only 131 teams in it. Two teams joined FBS this year. So now Iowa can be 132 in the nation in <laughs> offensive yards per game. Only Sam Houston State is worse. They are coming off a win against Purdue. Deacon Hill, now the starting quarterback for Iowa because Cade McNamara is out for the year, was 6 of 21 for 110 yards. And if anyone doesn't know it, Brian Ferentz is also the quarterback's coach. So 6 of 21 isn't good but once again they won and we're going to get to it later soon they're going to basically play a game to win the big 10 west this week and I, I don't know what to think <laughs> it's it's infuriating is, is what i think of it uh they kicked two field goals inside the 10 yard line <laughs> in this game which like in and of itself should be a fireable offense even if you're not existing in a world where you're having unqualified son of the head coach coordinating your offense. Um, I don't know, man. They keep winning, but like it doesn't get any less frustrating that this man gets to throw this offense out there and subject all of us to watching it. It's one of these things where, I mean, like complimentary football, I, I think some people believe Iowa must play this way in order to succeed. And my main point of all of this is you don't have to be this bad at offense for your defense to be excellent or for your special teams to be very good, which it often is at Iowa. And imagine how good they would be if their offense was just 70th in the nation instead of 132nd or 90th in yards per game. And this is the thing, like if there was a drop-off, Brian Ferentz took over as the offensive coordinator in 2017. That year, they were 117th in the nation in yards per game offensively. The next year, they were 92nd. The next year, they were 99th. The next year in 2020, they were 87th. Like, they're getting better. Hey, Bri. Hey, guy. First year as coordinator. Hey, 117. That's okay. 
can only go up from here. The last three years, 2021, 121. Last year, they wound up 130. And now, right now, they're 132. So, like, again, they use. I wasn't writing columns to fire the guy when he was in the 90s. The 90s was good enough. Just don't be in the 130s. Uh, what a low bar. What a low bar for success that he can't yeah. even get there. Top 90 offense. Top 90 <laughs> offense. I So there's a thing. Um, statbroadcast.com. Anybody can go look at it. it is, you can look at it. I would suggest it to anybody. You could have it up on your computer while you're watching games on the weekend. And there's it's great stats there. At, like after a couple of days, the great sort of inside analytical stats go away. But the the basic is the official book of the game. So it's, it's just a great place. All the teams are on there to go dork around if you want to. Statbroadcast.com. So I was I went to dork around on there to find the Iowa box score. And I typed it in. And it's like they do it for all the sports. So I put in like the day of the most recent Iowa events. Okay. And the first event that came up had a score of Purdue 3, Iowa 0. And I was like, wait, that, is that the football game? <laughs> Wait, was the score of the Iowa Purdue game this weekend three to zero? And it's like, no, that was the women's volleyball match. The score of the football game was twenty to fourteen. But that's the <laughs> that's where we are. Where I saw a score that was three zero, and my first instinct was that's an Iowa football score. So that's where we are. Uh, Kirk Ferentz was asked after the game if they thought about taking Deacon Hill out. Our guy John Steppy asked that question, which is a very reasonable question when you're six of 21 and Kirk Ferentz is like, what, what are you talking about? This is a silly question. It's like, okay, if that's a silly, if that would be silly, you want to get silly. We can get silly in the post game, Kirk. So I don't know. Uh, we're going to do it in the preview, but humongous, humongous Wisconsin game this weekend. And Iowa is right there at five and one. I can't believe we're here. I can't believe. Something needs to change in the sport if that team's getting rewarded <laughs> for what they're doing. It is going to change, which is that the Big Ten West isn't going to exist anymore. So I uh, I don't know. Okay, so that's where it is. The players are trying. Cooper DeGene, who we talked about, who next time we do a full Knights of the North ranking of the 15 best players in the North, is going to make a strong case at corner yep. to be on that list. Had a pick. Returned it to the five-yard line. They kicked a field goal. I think they went the backwards. It's the Iowa baby. That's how, that's four, how they get points. It was a minus four-yard drive for a field goal. And Brian's just like, bang, three for me. <laughs> Boom. And then I did see after the debacle, the debacle at Miami, where they refused to kneel at the end of the game and went fumble, lose the ball, give up a scramble touchdown in the last play of the game. Somebody said, like, even at Iowa – where they're trying to get the 25 points to save the job of the son of the coach. Even they kneeled. So I guess a little credit to Iowa for kneeling at the end of that yeah. 20 to 14 when they weren't trying to get into the end zone to get over 25. So they're still below the 25 point threshold, but we're all below the threshold when it comes to talking about <laughs> Iowa offense. All right. When we come back, look ahead time, five interesting games. And then the game that everybody's going to be watching next on Kings of the North. Doug Lemarice, Bill Landis, we'd like to look ahead on Kings of the North every Monday, talk about the games that matter most the coming week for our 28 Northern teams. So it's not, it's not just Michigan and Ohio State and Penn State. There's some other interesting games that we want to talk about. And the first one on the list is a Thursday night game, Landis. It's West Virginia 
who we have talked about on this show this year, four and one at Houston. Houston's two and three. It's Thursday night on FS1 at 7 p.m. West Virginia on the road is favored by two and a half. And I'm always fascinated. This is Dana Holgerson who left West Virginia to go take the job at Houston. But this is like another opportunity for West Virginia to creep closer to bowl eligibility and continue what has been a great start to the season. Even if it's been, you know, we're not quite sure how they did it. They've done it. This is not because I think Houston is a tremendous football team. And in fact, I think Houston has been a bit underwhelming under Dana Holgerson. They should be a better program than they are. Uh, I can't believe West Virginia is favored in any game yeah. <laughs> on the road just because of the way they've been getting by. It's like it, it's felt untenable for the entire season. But to their credit, they continue to win. And I do think that defense is very good. I, I think they can certainly keep Houston in check and win and win this game. Um, and like you said, yeah, it would continue. Uh, I don't want to call it a resurgent season for Neil Brown because, again, they're not playing particularly good football, but they are winning games, which I suppose is all that matters, especially at West Virginia. I don't think they concern themselves much with how you're winning as long as you're winning, um, and they are in striking distance of bowl eligibility, which is okay, I think, for this year, but you want to be better than that, but it wouldn't be a bad sort of starting point to get this program back where it should be. Bowl eligibility of interest in our next game, it's – one and four Stanford at Colorado. Colorado's four and two. It's a Friday night game on ESPN at 10 p.m. Colorado at home, favored by 11 and a half. Coming off a nice win against Arizona State, Colorado won 27 24 after losing to Oregon and USC the previous two weeks. This Stanford game, obviously a very winnable game. And then four of their last five are against currently ranked teams. So if they want to make sure they get to six wins, they're going to have to beat. Stanford in this game and then beat Arizona at home. But I mean, I just thought after all the attention that Colorado got for the U the Oregon blowout and then actually hanging with USC mm-hmm. in, in a pretty good way, which again was a lot about USC's bad defense. I thought that was a good team win still without Travis Hunter against Arizona state. And guess what? Like maybe, maybe we're past the phenomenon part of this, but they're just a pretty solid football team trying to get to five and two. Yeah, I think like, and I would probably include us in this, right? Like everyone was super excited about the start of the season for Colorado when all of us probably got out over our skis a little bit with them without actually, you know, addressing what were clear flaws with this team, flaws that showed up when they played Oregon and to a lesser extent when they lost to USC, but certainly when they played Oregon, right? This is not a complete football team. This is not a team that belongs in the national conversation, but it's also a team that won one freaking game last year and Dion's got them turned around and on, on the cusp of bowl eligibility, which I think is like worth celebrating, right? If you want to make a, uh, a laughing stock of Dion or feel some type of way about him because he gets a lot of attention. Like they've done a pretty good job. I think getting this program turned around very quickly. And I think there's reason to believe that it will continue to build and get better from here, but you got to win this game. You got to win this game. And I don't even think Arizona is a gimme because I think Arizona can go blow for blow scoring wise with, with Colorado certainly. Yep. And I think like Colorado probably wouldn't be favored in that game. I, I don't think maybe, maybe they would be. Um, they were done a favor, not a favor, but I think they benefited from the fact that Arizona state is like playing for nothing and was incredibly shorthanded in that game. And they beat them good for them. They, they won a game. They should have won. Um, I think it's actually a good test of like where they are, right? Can you, can you go win a game? I think you should win against Stanford and go win a game that is maybe like a toss up against Arizona and get this program back to playing some postseason football. Shadur Sanders, 16 touchdowns, two interceptions on the year at quarterback for Colorado. Third game is Iowa State at Cincinnati. 
I just kind of like this because it's a northern game. It's Saturday at noon on FS1. Cincinnati is a home favorite, favored by four. You know, like they're both, again, fighting for bowl eligibility kind of situation. And I think they're similar programs. Like they're the number two program in their respective state behind Big Ten teams. They're they're not, you know, Iowa State's been in the Big 12, but it's always kind of been an outlier in the Big 12. Now Cincinnati's there. I, I'm we we had like the whatever the wheel, the wheel paddle trophy for the Pitt Cincinnati game. I'd be in favor of some kind of uh, you know, hawk buck, buck corn, I don't know, kind of trophy. Cause like I don't want to, I don't want an Ohio State Iowa trophy. Nobody wants a trophy for playing Iowa. But I'd create <laughs> something now that Cincinnati and Iowa State are in the same conference. I actually think these are two programs that kind of have some things in common. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Um, good win for Iowa State to beat TCU to take advantage of some some miscues from TCU and, and win that game. I think Cincinnati's on like a little bit of a of a disappointing run here, like to lose to Miami Ohio, and then like play Oklahoma tough. Yeah, and and then come out the next week, and and I, I think they could have beaten BYU, um, and like that wasn't that wasn't an overwhelming challenge. I think for Cincinnati, it was it was out there, right? Maybe that's tough travel, or whatever. But um, I think it's a game that they reasonably could have won because I don't think BYU is is tremendous either. But they lose that game, so I think they need to bounce back here. I think they can definitely win this game. I don't like Iowa State is pretty salty on defense and terrible on offense. I think you'd say the same about Cincinnati. But I think Cincinnati might have a little bit higher of an offensive ceiling if things click for them on a particular day. So if it does for them in this one, um, I think it would be a nice win for them. And if you like look at what they have coming up, like if you get this one, and I think you can beat Baylor at home. Um, I think you can beat UCF at home. Um, and then like, can you take one on the road at Houston at West Virginia? Like maybe. I don't, those all those all kind of feel like toss up games to me. So Cincinnati season is is still in a, in a decent place despite um, some disappointing results here early on. The four new teams in the Big 12 this season, BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF, they haven't beaten any of the any of the old Big 12 oh. members yet. The only conference win for any of them is BYU against Cincinnati. So this would be an opportunity to get that first win where the new Big 12 beats the old Big 12. So it's, it's, this is kind of a big one for Cincinnati. Uh, also a big one for Iowa. Iowa at Wisconsin. This is a 4 p.m. kick on Fox. Iowa five and one, Wisconsin four and one. Wisconsin is favored by nine and a half. And if Wisconsin's favored by nine and a half, part of that to me is I'm not sure Iowa can score 10 in this game. But at the same time, I'm a little surprised that Wisconsin's favored by this much. But we have to remember that the only real team that Iowa's played this year, they lost 31 nothing to Penn State. Like they did, they got blown off the field. So, and that's a that's a Penn State offense that we don't think is great. So Wisconsin with Tanner Mordecai and Braylon Allen and what they do, I feel like maybe they're rounding into form a little bit after the Washington state loss. I don't know. Do you think this is close or Wisconsin decide to tell Kirk Ferentz who owns the West now? I just don't know if Wisconsin's built to win by that much, even against a team like Iowa, who's not going to score a ton. Like Iowa's defense is good. This is the best defense that Wisconsin will have faced this year, right? What's the, like Washington State is probably the only yeah, like, oh, no, Washington. Rucker, they did play they just play Rutgers defense is pretty good. I shouldn't yep. I shouldn't discount Rutgers. Rutgers does have a good defense. Um, but this is the best offense best defense that Wisconsin will have played. Like I, I think like 20 points might win it for Wisconsin, but I don't I don't look at uh, the Badgers as a team that's like ready to roll on offense. I I actually think their passing game remains underwhelming and they're giving the ball to Braylon Alamore, if only because they have no other choice to. 
um, because Chesma Lucy is out and he's their Braylon Allen's their guy now, but um, they're not like they, what they scored 24 points last week against Rutgers. Like they're not, they're not rocking and rolling on that side of the ball. And I think Tanner Mordecai has been average at best, if not below average with that passing attack. So I think this is a close game. I think it's a low scoring game. Um, I would pick Wisconsin just because of how anemic Iowa is on offense, but I don't, I don't think anyone is is rolling in this game. I don't think any. I don't think it's a comfortable one. Those FEI ratings that we like, Iowa is one twentieth in offense in those rankings. Wisconsin's thirty sixth, mm. so that's a big gap. I'm intrigued by this because when Kirk Ferentz at Big Ten Media Days in July was asked about Luke Fickle going to this air raid offense, at Kirk Ferentz's answer was like, "Yeah, I'm curious about that because the, the clear impl- implication is he doubts it, and it's something he would never do." So these programs Clearly. share a <laughs> Brian, we're gonna throw it 45 times a game. Any sentence actually, any any Iowa offensive sentence that begins with Brian is a bad sentence. So like, the whole point of this is Brian's replacement, comma, we're gonna run the air raid. I I like there's so much D- shared DNA historically with how Iowa and Wisconsin have tried to go about it and honestly have had pretty good success the last two, three decades, right? I mean, honestly, it's we know that. And Wisconsin, Luke Fickle came in and said, we're going to change. We're going to try to modernize. And Kirk Ferentz said, we're going to nepotize. <laughs> we're not going to modernize. We're going to keep doing it the old-fashioned way. And here's the collision. Now, it's year one at Wisconsin, and I don't know, but I am fascinated by the collision because if Iowa wins, Kirk Ferentz is going to go back into his cave and be like, we're never going to try to score, and I'm never firing my son. I don't care about the 25-point thing. Wisconsin tried to evolve, and look what happened. But if Wisconsin wins, maybe it's like one of the final nails in the idea of Iowa wants to play like it's 1940. So I, I do think there's like a, a clash of current cultures here that I am really fascinated to watch. Yeah. It'll be, a, a, you know, it's a, it's a particular brand of football, but if you're into that brand of football, I think it'll be a, compel- a competitive game. Last one here in this look ahead is USC at Notre Dame six and USC Notre Dame's five and two with losses to Ohio state and Louisville. As we said earlier, another primetime game, 7.30 on NBC. And I'm a little surprised by this. As horrible as USC's defense is, Notre Dame is favored. Notre Dame favored by two and a half. What do you think of that line? I mean, it's reflective of the USC defense, <laughs> I think is what it is. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm actually surprised by that, too. I, I still probably would have thought that USC would have been favored in this game. But, like, Notre Dame's defense is pretty good, right? Um, I don't think – I think it is – a, a tier below, or maybe two tiers below the best defenses in the North, but I still think it's it's comfortably like a top 25-ish, 30 defense nationally, right? It's a pretty good outfit. Um, and like USC's been messing around, man. Even last week, like I, like they they scored enough to beat Arizona, but like their offense didn't look great. And I think their offense will have to be clicking on all cylinders in this one to win this game. And it's a fair question, I guess, to ask whether or not they can against what is a, a decent Notre Dame defense. And the FEI ratings, again, analytical ratings, rankings, ratings, ratings. Rankings is people thinking ratings is numbers. Ratings that we like, 
USC is seventh in offense and 86th in defense. Notre Dame is 20th in offense and 15th in defense. Yeah. So that sounds about right. Like you're saying, like, like talk a top 25 defense. We're not talking about like Georgia Penn State, but we're talking about like a pretty solid defense. I wonder, again, the idea that how much longer can USC tolerate this defense and defensive coordinator Alex Grinch, this would actually be the opportunity because whatever happens in this game does not affect USC in the Pac-12 race. And with as good as the Pac-12 is, I, you know, even if USC loses this game, if they run the table, the Pac-12, they're in the playoff. Like with wins over Washington and Oregon and then a, a, another team like that in the Pac-12 title game, they'd be in the playoff. If Sam Hartman comes out and throws all over this USC defense, it might be it. So you brought that up early, but it might be an opportunity because th if USC is going to lose, lose this one. Because mm. if they lose to Oregon or Washington or somebody like that, that's much more detrimental. I think Sam Hartman needs that, right? I think he's been a little underwhelming. I know he had a good drive at the end against Duke, but like I don't, I don't think he's played his best football in these last three games against marquee opponents, which is like sort of the knock on him. So it would be good to see him bounce back for Notre Dame. Um, is Jaden Greathouse going to play? Do you know? Do we know I that? I don't know. Yeah, like he's been out there last two games. Like I, I question their ability to be explosive with their receivers, even if he is available. But that is the one question for me. It's like say say he doesn't play. And say Notre Dame's offense is like Audric Estime and Mitchell Evans, who is awesome, by the way. We have like when we talk about guys who are gonna rise up the, the player rankings, like Mitchell Evans has been incredible, the tight end for Notre Dame. He and Audric Estime and that rushing attack might be enough because USC is not only bad defending the pass, they're also bad defending the run. Um, so I think I think that could be fine, but I'd feel more comfortable if one, I knew that Notre Dame was gonna have its full complement of receivers, and two, if they could actually get a little something going to those guys, because they really haven't been able to do so yet. Yeah, Ohio State very specifically took that away. I'm not sure this USC defense can take anything away. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to look ahead at the game. Yeah, it's not the game. It's not the game. But it's Oregon-Washington. It's the best game in the history of Oregon and Washington. And it gets its own segment next on Kings of the North. All right, finishing up our look ahead, Landis, with the game that deserves a longer discussion. It's Oregon at Washington. This is a 3.30 kick on ABC. They are getting the e, the big-time crew, Chris Fowler, Kirk Herbstreet, Holly Rowe, and Washington at home is favored by three. So it's basically a toss-up game. Washington leads this series 61-48 to five, but Oregon has won 15 of the last 18. So Oregon smoked them for a decade plus. Washington did win last year in the final seconds. They've been doing this for 123 years. This will be the 115th game, and it's the first time they're both ranked in the top 10 of the AP poll, Landis. I don't think we can underestimate how huge this game is. The winner becomes the favorite in the Pac-12. The winner becomes the favorite to get a playoff berth, and I think either of these teams in a wide-open year is capable of winning the national championship. But that road starts here. I don't think the loser is out hmm. because the one lost loser, if they don't trip up again, would be in the Pac-12 championship game with a shot at revenge, potentially. But what it does for the winner is gigantic. I'm so psyched for this game. Yeah, I think there's also two, like, Neither one of these teams, I think, gets to live comfortably after this game, right? There, there are other landmines within oh, the yeah. Pac-12. So, like, 
even that, I, 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 the, that doesn't guarantee like the winners in doesn't guarantee the losers out because I think like the winner could go on and lose two more games, perhaps the way the Pac-12 is set up here. So um, it's a monster. It's a monster game. Um, I kind of wish it was at night. Uh, it's a little like I'm, I'm I wasn't as bummed out about these big games being more during the daytime when they they initially started. And maybe it's because I cover Ohio State on a day to day basis and have just seen too many of these games move to a, a, a less than atmosphere. But like this game needs to be prime time under the lights. Everybody sauced up and, and ready to roll out in Seattle. Yeah, that'd be fun. I don't know. Three thirty games used to be the spot, man. Like I, right? But now it's noon to... out there. It's earlier no, out there. It's... You just want the people in the upper nor- in the northwest to be drunk. Is that your main gripe here? They're not going to. I drunk just enough? want. I want like this is. This is an opportunity, I think, for like two great northern football teams to play a absolute banger of a game, and I think it can be that if you play it at nine o'clock in the morning on the moon, right? But I, but it could. The maximized version of this is like putting it in the prime time stage, and uh, it's a it doesn't take any shine off the game for me. I just kind of I wish it was there. Last year, Washington won in the final seconds, and so many people are back from that game. Michael Penix and Bo Nix. Also, I think this is the first matchup ever. Um, well, it was last year at least, but the first quarterback matchup ever where one quarterback's entire last name resides within the last name of the opposing quarterback. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ruminate on that. So Bo Nix last year, 19 of 28 for 280 yards, two touchdowns. Michael Penix, 26 of 35 for 408, two touchdowns and a pick. Last year, Oregon, 592 yards. Washington, 522 yards. So over 1,000. I think think we'll get over 1,000 again in this one. Uh, Last year, Michael Penix threw a 62-yard touchdown with three minutes left um, to – put Washington ahead, Oregon, no, to tie the game, to tie it for Washington, Oregon went for it on fourth and one from their own 34 with a minute and a half left. And the running back slipped on the handoff goes down. Washington gets the ball back, kicks a field goal, a 43 yard field goal, with like 50 seconds left to go ahead. And then Oregon's driving for a tying field goal. Troy Franklin, our guy that we talked about makes a catch at the, 20 like two yard line with one second left and goes out of bounds would have set up a game tying 39 yard field goal attempt, but he stepped out of bounds on the route and was called for illegal touching. So they wound up trying to throw a, like a hail Mary that didn't work. So like this went down to the wire in the best possible way last year, Landis, let me give you some stats about this year. And it fits. I think what we talked about in the discussion about flaws, Points per game this year, Oregon is second in the nation at 51.6. Washington's third at 46 points per game. So again, I think we're looking at 1,000 yards, potentially in 100 points in this game. Yards per game, Washington's first, 569. Oregon's second, 554. FEI rating, offense, Washington one, Oregon five. So Washington rated better offensively. Defense, Oregon 17, Washington 33. So the defensive units, both not as good, clearly. Both offense first teams. But I do think Oregon's defense is better. I don't know that yeah. anybody would dispute that right now. So I do think this comes down to, can the relentless Washington offense 
with Roma Dunze, Jalen Polk, and Jalen McMillan back just absolutely outscore Oregon because I'm not sure Washington's going to stop Oregon. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. I think I think that makes the start really important for Washington. Like, can you get out? <clears throat> and not necessarily can you get up early, but like, can you can you put Oregon's defense on its heels early? And like, if it's a back and forth shootout, then like I certainly like Washington's ability to do that. Um, if it's a situation where Washington really has to work the ball down the field, maybe not dissimilar from how they had to do um, a couple weeks ago against Arizona. Um, or was it? What, I, keep, I keep getting those games mixed up. Which was the game where like they Arizona? Had to run the ball? No, Arizona. Arizona, right? Arizona played Washington pretty tight within one score, and then Arizona also came out and took USC to triple overtime. So like Arizona's a pain. Yeah, like, and but that was like put an umbrella over the Washington offense, make them show they can work the ball down the field without throwing it over heads. Um, if Oregon can do that, then I guess I get a little bit worried, but I don't know that they can. I guess, I guess we'll see. If if I say to you. I think Oregon is the much more physical football team in this game. I guess one, do you agree with that? And two, then how much does that matter? I think I probably agree. I think I I would agree. But can a can a downfield passing attack be physical? Because this feels like a that's what it feels like to me. Because sometimes I feel like an air raid passing offense can kind of feel light and fluffy. And mm. this feels like a sledgehammer to me. And it's just like rip contested catch, rip post, rip crossing route, bang, bang, bang. So I think there's a physicality to the way off Washington throws the ball that counteracts maybe their lack of traditional physicality in a game like this, because I do think Washington has a chance to just wear on Oregon because the passing attack is so rough. Penix is a physical quarterback. You know, like I just, yeah. he throws like downhill to me. It feels like he's coming at you. Even when he's going over you, he's coming at you. And so I think in that way, I'm less concerned about Oregon having a traditional physical edge. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's it's, it's almost hard to put in the words, right? But I, but I think I agree with you. There's like a <clears throat> the assertiveness with with which like Washington operates its passing attack, which is like we don't care. Like we're gonna bomb it on you and keep yeah. bombing it on you and keep bombing it on you. There is something about that that does like feel like I don't know if physical is the right word for it, but it is. It's just like it's an onslaught. Yes, and they don't and they, and they don't care like what the state of the game is, who's up, who's down, how things have transpired. They're just gonna keep doing it. <laughs> And and I do think there is an element of that that can wear on a defense over time. So like even if it's not rocking and rolling in the beginning, and like Oregon comes out with a good plan, then Washington has to counter to that. I still think like in the back of your mind, if you're any defense playing Washington, you're just like, all right, when's it going to come? When's like when when is when is bombs away time? Because you know they're not going to stop doing it. And I think that is in a weird way like a, it's a it's an attribute of Washington that is hard to quantify, but I think certainly exists. And I don't feel Oregon's offense is the same way, right? We've talked a lot about a dot average depth of target. Michael Penix, 11 yards per, per pass depth of target. He's throwing it 11 yards down the field on his average throw. Bo Nix is 6.4. It's practically double. Yeah. It is, it is sledgehammer versus a thousand cuts. And both are tremendously effective. Michael Penix this year, 134 of 179, 2004 passing yards, 16 touchdowns, two picks. 
Bo Nix, 128 of 160, 1,405 passing yards, 15 touchdowns, one pick. I think Washington's going to win because I think that onslaught, I, I don't think Oregon's going to stop that. And I just think Oregon with the thousand cuts just has to piece it together a little bit more. And it might not even be Washington stopping Oregon. But I think Oregon is more susceptible like, oh, a drop on third and seven. Oh, my gosh, it hit the guy right in the numbers. He hasn't dropped the pass all year. Now Oregon's got a punt. And I just think like or Washington's just like 30-yard pass, 30-yard pass, 30-yard pass. And in that matchup, I'll take the sledgehammer over the paper cuts, even if maybe traditionally Oregon is a more balanced team in a lot of ways. And by the way, like not much of a running attack for Washington. Bucky Irving in the backfield for Oregon is a dude, man. He is dynamic. Oregon's offensive line is really good too. I like, like we, yep. we don't talk about that that unit a whole lot. I think they're really good, and I think Washington's defensive line, as I mentioned earlier, has well, it's not it's not a bad, and like certainly they're capable of, of flipping a switch and, and think and I think being excellent, but I don't know that they've been that to this point this year. So like I would worry a little bit about like Oregon just saying you know what we're going to smash it. Like we have the offensive line to run the ball and keep the ball away from Washington's offense enough to like keep us within striking distance, or like even if Washington scores every time it has the ball but it only has the ball seven times because of Oregon playing ball control. Like I think that's on the table. Oregon rushed for 300 yards against Washington in this game last year. Um, I think they're definitely capable of doing that this year. And I think that's probably the method or that's the, that's the path to victory for Oregon. I think is maybe slowing it down a little bit and, and really relying on that offensive line and, and less on Bo Nix. Like Bo Nix is a compliment to your offensive line and your rushing attack in this game. And, and that's how you win. Cause I think if you try to go throw for throw with them, I like, yeah. I like Washington in that game. Um, but I don't think if you turn this into like, I don't, you can't turn it into like a, a man ball on both sides. Like I, I don't think Washington's going to get dragged into that game because it's not their strength. But I do think that, Oregon is much more equipped to get this to a game state that favors them um, via a, like a, a physical rushing attack than Washington is. I'll take a Washington victory, maybe on a final drive yeah. game in the forties, maybe something like 49, 45, Michael Penix throws the game winning touchdown with 45 seconds left, something like that. I guess if I'm betting it, I would take Washington minus three. What would you take here on a Monday? Um, I, it's tough, man. Like I, I, it's hard with Oregon because, like, we, as we said, like we we think they're really good, like really balanced on both sides of the ball. But it's hard to really wrap your arms around that because the schedule just hasn't shown us enough that to to believe that that's true. But I'm I'm probably going to err on that side. I will I will take the physicality of Oregon. I think in this game, I agree with you. I think it is. I think it's tight. I think it might come down to the last possession. Maybe it's similar to last year, but Oregon makes that last play instead of stepping out of bounds and not getting the opportunity to kick that field goal. So um, I would, I'll would i take the Ducks in, in a one-score game. All right. We don't always do picks on Monday, but sometimes you gotta. And uh, it's just the first of many big Northern games to come. We hope you guys will be with us for all of those games here on Kings of the North. We're doing it Northern football style, man, and we're like developing what that style is. But if you've listened a couple times, I hope you're getting a feel for it. We'll, we continue to get a feel for it ourselves, and we just so happen to have some pretty dang good football to talk about here. So that's not going to change for now. 
Appreciate our guy, Mike Yorostowski, our producer, making everything look good, making everything sound good, helping us get organized, elevating this show in every way. We'll be back on Kings of the North next Monday. We'll have uh, Kings of Columbus talking all about Ohio State on Wednesday for now for Bill Landis. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Kings of the North.